This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to the Why We Argue podcast. I'm Robert Talese, your host. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Why We Argue is produced by Humility and Conviction in Public Life, a project based at the University of Connecticut, which explores how to balance our deepest commitments with open-mindedness, a respect for reason, and intellectual humility. The series, which is made possible by generous funding from the John Templeton Foundation, features brief discussions with publicly-minded thinkers about the state of civil discourse in contemporary democracy. Today, my guest is Tommy Shelby. Tommy is Caldwell Titcomb Professor of African and African American Studies and Professor of Philosophy at Harvard University. Tommy specializes in social and political philosophy, philosophy of race, and Africana philosophy. His latest book is titled Dark Ghettos, Injustice, Dissent, and Reform. It's published by Harvard University Press. Hi, Tommy. Hi, Bob. How are you? I'm doing fine. You doing okay today? I'm great. I'm great. Looking forward to chatting. Well, great. Thank you so much for for joining me on the Why We Argue podcast. Um, I wanted to begin maybe with uh, one of the central themes of your uh, your latest book, Dark Ghettos. Um, the United States is, uh, by anybody's estimation, I think, a site of several forms of persistent, durable inequality. Um, and we're talking here not only about inequalities of wealth and opportunity, but also inequality with respect to vulnerability to violence, inequality with respect to exposure to policing, um, inequality with respect to access to necessities like medicine and healthcare, fresh food, legal protection and representation, and so on. Um, maybe a place to begin to say, how do you think these latter forms of inequality impact democracy? That's a great question. I am... I, um... I've spent the last few years thinking about the situation of, uh, you know, what some social scientists call the ghetto poor. Um, these are people living in metropolitan neighborhoods that are uh, tend to have, you know, kind of salient patterns of racial segregation along with concentrated disadvantage. So dis- concentrated disadvantage, meaning like, you know, a high percentage usually some 40 percent or roughly of people who are poor, but also suffer from numerous other forms of of disadvantage who are living together in um, metropolitan space. And you do see uh, a mixture of disadvantage that have to do with basic things like, you know, income and, and wealth, but also access to jobs, access to quality schools. Um, access to, uh, to to decent public services. Um, uh, you 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 also have uh, because of the, the the concentration of 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 poverty. You typically will find um, a lot of public disorder and sometimes um, crime and and violence, uh, which can seem to license uh, a fairly aggressive law enforcement presence. In, in these neighborhoods, which can often be a kind of menacing force in the lives of, of citizens. Um, and that presence isn't always, uh, at least to the, in, in the minds of its 
uh, residents, and I think this is borne out by what we know about clearance rates for, for crimes, including murders, is that people often don't feel well protected, despite the fact that there's a lot of police presence in, in those neighborhoods. And so you have all these things kind of combined. And, and so, you know, ghetto neighborhoods are, are sort of a good site for re- reflecting on um, these multiple forms of linked disadvantage and how they impact <clears throat> um, democratic practice. And so you can imagine some of the ways in which this might play out, you know, from uh, feelings of, you know, political alienation and cynicism, uh, this kind of sense of a lack of collective efficacy and a, lot, a sense that you can't really change things for the better. And that can lead people to to kind of withdraw from public engagement, um, you know, altogether. Um, the criminal justice system is seen as a kind of site of 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 domination for a, for a lot of people in, in such neighborhoods, in, including um, disenfranchisement of many um, of its members who have been, say, convicted of a, uh, of a felony or a drug crime, say, whatnot, who even after being released might not have in some states, uh, uh, many states, in fact, might not be able to, to vote. And so that only, I think, kind of adds to the sense of political alienation, the sense of not imagining yourself as a part of this kind of broader we uh, in, in collective self-governance. That exclusion might include participation on juries, um, which uh, people complain about <laughs> being on juries. Um, uh, it actually, I think, does help to kind of give you a sense of, of you're, particip- you're participating in the maintenance of, of social and political life, right, by participating in, in the, you watch, as the procedure unfolds, the rituals and everything around it are, I think, good for getting, giving people a sense of civic responsibility. Um, if you have a lot of concentrated disadvantage, people uh, tend not to have a lot of political power. It's hard to get people to listen to your concerns. It's hard to get people to, uh, politicians to, to pay attention to you. Um, and the more fluent people will, will tend to uh, get their way in, in, in these environments. Um, you know, you can see a kind of simmering anger and resentment in some of these neighborhoods sometimes turn to urban rebellion, as we've seen in places like um, Ferguson, now in St. Louis again, and um, Baltimore and other places. Uh, these things will happen often when people feel like uh, public officials aren't really listening to them. It's also just because of the high levels of joblessness in some of these neighborhoods. Um, and you get that combined with which can lead to alienation, but combined with those who are working, working very difficult jobs, long hours, sometimes with long commuting times. And so there's an impact on just energy and time to participate in, in politics. So I think that concentrated disadvantage like this impacts political participation in numerous ways, and I think undermines um, our ability to participate in, you know, what many of us like to think of as, um, you know, um, collective self-rule. Right. And um, just to to emphasize one of the things that you had touched touched on, um, it also seems that um, the the kinds of uh, inequality and disadvantage that we're talking about um, also um, encourage the thought that governance is always by you know, strictly by imposition rather than by any process of self-rule that, um, you know, higher susceptibility to policing the 
interactions with state agencies is always uh, or, or is pre predominantly uh, in um, the mode of um, imposing order. And so it's hard, I guess, uh, in, in communities that are uh, subject to these kinds of systematic inequalities, it's hard to see the political order as following from uh, anything like collective self-will. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and when you have people who are very disadvantaged in this way, they often are interfacing with um, various, various state bureaucracies, uh, you know, from education, um, welfare system, housing, they're interacting with, you know, large, sometimes, you know, federal, state, and municipal uh, bureaucracies where the, the administrators and the, the officials there, you know, often will show, you know, contempt mm -hmm. for the people who they're supposed to be serving and um, not always uh, sensitive to the time constraints and other kinds of pressures that are on the people in these communities. And so if you're, if, if, if almost all of your interactions with, uh, public institutions are, you know, negative like this and where you feel like people don't really take your interests very seriously and they may even have um, strong forms of contempt or a sense that, they, that you're not uh, pulling your weight or deserving of the things that you're laying claim to as, a, as supposedly an equal citizen. I mean, that too is going to lead to a kind of withdrawal from public affairs and a sense of that... Um, it becomes like just not an obstacle to your flourishing. Uh, the, the, these institutions are supposed to be there to serve you, and you are supposed to be in some ways participating in uh, ensuring that these public services are there for everybody and everybody's treated with respect, everyone's treated with uh, a kind of equal concern. So I do think that if, if from, again, I mean, it's certainly law enforcement, and that tends to be uh, a place where, People are most upset um, by uh, in these neighborhoods. Most upset by how they're treated by public officials. But I think it it extends to you know the, the teachers and principals to the people with the housing authority to and so on down the line. Right. So it, it seems to me that um, uh, the 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 existence and the the, the sort of sturdiness of uh, these patterns of disadvantage are. are are obvious. That's, that seems true to me. It also seems that the, the kinds of connections that you were just drawing between those patterns of disadvantage and various kinds of democratic deficits, uh, that seems obvious to me too. Um, yet it seems like the public conversation around these two obvious things um, mm -hmm. is strained in all kinds of ways. And I just want to give you one kind of mm -hmm. example and, and see what you think that um, critical voices uh, uh um, that uh, are aimed at um, demanding or insisting upon basic equality. Uh, and I'm thinking here of uh, the Black Lives Matter movement in particular, which uh, is a call for equality. Um, in the broader national conversation, Black Lives Matter is that the claim is heard as um, a demand for some something else. It's some kind of special treatment or uh, something over and above equality. Um, and so uh, it's 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 not hard to see how that conversation, <laughs> uh, uh, where w w what's being offered as a as a as a as a, a plea for equality is being heard as a plea for something uh, something else. Um, it's not hard to see how that conversation isn't going to uh, be productive on the national level. Um, uh, 
how how do you see the, the you know how do you see the national discourse around inequality and disadvantage uh, uh, going? What, what what ways is it failing? Oh, in so many ways. <laughs> um, so it's hard to know where to begin. I mean, some of, in the case of Black Lives Matter, I mean, I think it's, it is important there to connect it to um, race in a criminal justice system. I mean, so I think that. You know, black people, you know, since since in this country, since slavery have um, had, um, you know, mostly negative experiences with um, law enforcement or criminal justice system, um, extremely negative experiences. And with that that long history is a part of of, of our historical memory. Um, and, you know, we have feeling like even since the Civil Rights Act of 64, we we're, you know, you know, here we are more than 50, 50 years later, and we're still seem like we're fighting the same battles uh, around just basic respect, expecting police officers not to be to be racist and think that every every black person, especially um, young black males, are are dangerous and um, and, and that require lethal force to be used to contain them. When you're with that long history of of negative engagement, I think black people's patience is, you know, running th- thin. Mm-hmm. I mean, as my colleague Corny West would say, I mean, in many ways, you know, it's like you, you, you would think that people should think that, wow, it's amazing how black people have been able to keep from being at the throats of their fellow citizens, given how much they have to put up with. So, so in a way, I think that's all the more frustrating, the sense that like with all that black people are having to put up with and dealing with the way in law enforcement treats black people, um, when the simple assertion that we're due due process, <laughs> you know, and that people shouldn't use excessive force to control us on this, and th- th- that that will be seen as um, uh, uh, asking for special treatment, just I think is partly what strikes people saying. Well, that the only thing that could mean really is that you don't really think black people's interests are as important as others. I think that's why you get a, a Black Lives Matter kind of. Uh, 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 assertion, but I also think that I, I think a lot of people who are um, not black and brown, I think they they probably experience the police very differently. Um, and I, th- I think the polling, if you look at survey data, I, I think that's one place where racial polarization is strong. I think a lot of of, of whites don't uh, have a negative view of the police, see them very positively. And um, as helpful protecting them and their property, uh, and so do you have a very you, you have like a, an institution uh, of law enforcement where um, you know people of color and whites have very different, by and large, very different views of their role in society and how and their and, and how they do their jobs. So it becomes a site of one of many sites of racial conflict. Uh, so I think you have to read the response to the Black Lives Matter campaign in in view of that that broader background of racial polarization um, and that long history of, of of black people's relationship to 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 law enforcement. Right. So, um, do you think that? Uh, I mean, here's a here's a, a, a philosophical question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Let me see what I can do with that. Yeah. 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 Uh, <laughs> So just thinking about sort of um, the way forward, um, 
do we need to begin with um, addressing uh, the institutions that produce these patterns of structural disadvantage, figure out some way to change them, and um, through that kind of change, uh, 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 hope for improvements in uh, you know the democratic norms, democratic practices, or do we begin with um, not the institutions, but with the national conversation and with uh, uh, um, the sort of uh, non-state-centered uh, democratic life and try to um, uh, improve uh, improve conditions there uh, and and look for institutional changes to to arise out of them. Yeah, that's that's hard. I mean, I, I guess the way I think of it is, I mean, just take a, a, some a, a couple of things. So I take it that you know, due process and um, basic political liberties, these are always priorities um, when it comes to trying to bring about a more just society. You have to, there are some people who call constitutional essentials, right? You know, you can't have equal standing in the polity if people cannot expect um, due process to be respected uh, and they can't expect to be able to exercise their basic political liberties. But those things, it's hard to secure those if you aren't securing um, kind of basic material well-being and access to uh, socioeconomic opportunities. So it's hard to, to unhook them, right? So if you can say, for instance, that, well, we want the police to um, you know, treat everybody with respect regardless of their race and not to racial profile and not to be so aggressive in black neighborhoods and so on. But it's hard to do that. Uh, to, you can just do training and, and trying to get trying to get good people to do the, to do that kind of work. It's hard to, to solve the problem if you still have deep socioeconomic disadvantage, because that's going to, as we've known for you know decades of social science research, is typically going to lead to a, a fair amount of of, of crime and um, various forms of lawbreaking and, and political alienation. So it's 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 very difficult to secure something like due process if 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 you're not also securing um, people's basic social socioeconomic well well being at the same time. I think the same is true of the political liberties. We can say, well, we want people, you know, we you know I always think about you know after the last election, people talk about how the the people who who voted voted, but just like you know more than 40% of the people who are eligible to vote <laughs> didn't vote. <laughs> so, you know, you have a lot of people who have withdrawn in a way uh, from, uh, from, from, from politics and from, from public life, even when you have a really um, uh, momentous political decision and who to be the next president, given the options that we were faced with. So I think, you know, it's just bring, bringing those people back to the table, back into public life where they care uh, and able to, you know, follow the news, stay informed, um, participate in, in organizing, supporting chemists, all those things. It's very difficult for people to exercise those basic liberties, even when they are respected, which they aren't always because of voter suppression or other things. But even when they are respected, those political liberties, um, people can't really exercise them effectively because they're because of time, you know, they're working all the time, they're tired <laughs> when they get home. Um, and, they, and they have lots of reason to believe that their participation is not going to make a difference. So I think it's very hard to uh, make a lot of progress on securing these basic liberties of things like due process and, and people's um, political, liberties, political liberties, including voting rights, 
if you're not making an effort to do things about the quality of our schools, access to jobs, access to affordable housing, um, I think those things are, are really fundamental to uh, a robust public sphere, active uh, citizenry. Yeah. So does what role then do you think? So, you know, we, we began the conversation by sort of drawing a distinction between different kinds of site of um, disadvantage and inequality. And I said, you know, we're not just talking about inequalities of wealth and opportunity. We're also talking about these inequalities that seem to be more structural and social. But I'm wondering now if um, well, I'm wondering now what your view is about what 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 do you think the role is of um, the purely economic uh, inequalities. Is that the problem that has to be solved uh, as a part of making headway on uh, any of the um, uh, the kinds of social disadvantage that inhibit political participation? Is poverty a central uh, uh, piece of this puzzle and that, that, that that's got to uh, be pretty high on the agenda? I think absolutely. Um, I mean, we obviously, we, we know that, uh, I mean, to separate three different, three different things, it's like there's there's just kind of poverty in a sense of kind of absolute poverty of people just needing kind of basic necessities, just like decent housing and access to good to good food and, and clean water and those kinds of things. And those are problems that themselves, right? Those need to be addressed. Just kind of inequality in terms of people's kind of uh, relative um, access to resource income and wealth in particular, right? And we know that, that the, the inequality is quite extreme. And we also have the concentration of wealth in the hands of a few. So I think all three of those things, I think, are, um, are, are problems here. I mean, in the, in the latter case where you have, you know, so much of the wealth concentrated in the hands of, of, of the few and the power of multinational corporations to, uh, you know, reshape um, things and to basically make it impossible for people to even do things where there is basically a majority of people who want it. It's hard to get some of the things that we might want because of the, the, the power of the very rich to block it. And we and so we know this based on, you know, who gives to campaigns and how people in lobbying, all those kinds of things is very hard to do things. So I think you'd have to it, it, democratic practice will depend on attacking these economic questions at all three levels in terms of absolute poverty, because you know, no one's going to be participating much in politics with their, if their basic needs on that. Mm-hmm. The, any, the general inequality which uh, shapes, for instance, metropolitan space where, you know, you have the affluent who have a lot of control over what happens in a broader commuting area and around our various cities and the, and the working class and the, and the, and the poor having very little um, power and less access to the better schools and good ser- public services. And then there's just the, the broader problem of just the, the high concentration of wealth and, and, and how it gets retained in families through large intergenerational wealth transfers and inheritance um, is also a problem um, as, as well. And it seems very difficult I mean, to me. I don't really see how you could possibly um, I don't know what you do in terms of your, you know, civic education and <laughs> imploring people to participate more and to vote and so on. I don't know how you're going to be able to make much progress in, in those domains if these other three forms of economic injustice aren't aren't dealt with head on. 
Right. So, and Tommy, you've been very generous with your time. So I, I wanted to just make sure we got to this sort of um, w- one other sort of big philosophical question that uh, uh, none of us, uh, not even you, uh, 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 in a short period of time uh, can fully address. But um, I'm wondering to what extent you might think um, that some of the persistence and the durability of these inequalities has to do with um, the ways in which society is... Um, in a de facto way, sort of segregated along racial, economic, ethnic lines so that, um, uh, you know, um, the average uh, upper middle class white American, you know, might not um, ever uh, have any um, uh, sustained interaction uh, with uh, any fellow citizen who's not roughly like himself. Right. Yeah, that is a big question. Um, well, I mean, I, I I do think if you dealt with things we were just talking about before, some of the, the deep inequality, um, economic inequality, that would bring, I think, uh, a, a broader range of people into uh, different different racial ethnic backgrounds into contact uh, just if, just by, by lowering it. Because you have a, a lot of the most disadvantaged people are, are, are black and brown. Um, and tend to be concentrated in certain neighborhoods and and don't have access to interaction with more affluent and educated people. Um, and of course, if there were you know access to better to better schools and 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 easier access to higher education for uh, people with more moderate incomes, um, that also would bring people in contact with each other. I mean, a lot of I think the interaction that people have um, in terms of political discussion. Are with you know say families that uh, you know where your kids go to school you know right. or uh, or people you met in 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 college people who have a similar uh, professional background and so on um, so I think some of the if you like sort of racial polarization um, could be dealt with by just by greater uh, socioeconomic um, uh, equality. I don't. I, I, some of the alienation. I think people probably, even if they were, say, living in in different neighborhoods, you know, would I think find themselves in more conversations with people who aren't um, like them. If you didn't have such a uh, such a racial divide, such a such racial polarization. So even if you had people who say you moved a poor black family into uh, an integrated neighborhood with mostly affluent whites. That the, the the racial polarization, the stereotypes about uh, blacks, or the, or even stereotypes that blacks even might have about about affluent whites, are going to inhibit uh, any kind of interaction, or and there's going to be so much distrust that it's hard to have frank conversation about things. People will be polite and say things not to get anybody upset, or um, but if you, it, it, it's hard with with so much inequality and racially marked disadvantage to develop the kind of trust and mutual respect that would make these interracial interactions, you know, productive and honest and robust. You know what I mean? So it's hard for me to see, uh, I mean, just moving people around, (laughs) you know, in space, leaving, (laughs) leaving resources, I don't think is going to do that much for building those bonds of, of, of trust and uh, and loyalty that you I think need to have, you know, frank discussion about about public public matters. Very quickly, mm-hmm. <laughs> this is an unfair question. Um, 
what do you think the right way forward is? Given you know, that was a pretty you, you, the the way you uh, responded, um, uh, it sound, sounds pretty bleak. Is there a, is there a way forward that you see? Well, you know, I it, it's hard in a moment like we're in to to see what the way forward looks like because I think we're so naturally I think focused on trying to preserve the 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 things that we have that we want to keep sure. right. Um, that it's hard to think about bigger the bigger picture and and you can see why for instance uh you know there's a lot of activism even by myself i've sort of turned my own attention to thinking much more about issues uh of criminal justice because it seems to me that's an avenue where maybe you might be able to make some headway there's already a social movement underway lots of organizations news outlets that are concerned about these issues they sort of stay before the public um, and so it feels like it makes sense to see what headway you can make there or at least how to prevent things from getting worse, you know, right. and it, it's much harder to see how to make things um, much better in these other domains, you know, because of, you know, who we have leading things like, you know, HUD and Department of Education and, and so on. It's very hard to sort of see see the way forward. But I, I guess I tend to maybe this is my philosophical disposition is I, I try to take the. The long view. I mean, we have to both, you know, do our work, try to protect what we have and defend the vulnerable, but, you know, not lose sight of the broader things we're trying to achieve. So try to lay the groundwork for social movements, you know, egalitarian progressive social movements to to develop. That, I think that probably means trying to do our best to avoid kind of polarizing rhetoric yeah. and to avoid uh um, kind of stereotyping others who you have deep disagreements with, but I think it, it doesn't help to for us to just go to our corners and um, and, and and just lob rhetorical bombs at the other at the other side because we've got to be thinking about well what do we have to do now that some years later hopefully we'll be in a position to 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 repair some things and do some things better. So I I, I do. So, I mean, we're not in a great moment <laughs> right. to try to do, you know, large progressive social change. Um, that's not. But I do think, you know, one of the things that intellectuals, uh, broadly speaking, can can do is try to keep putting those broader ideals before the public, keep reminding them of those things, try to remind them of of commitments that, that they ostensibly already share um, and try to do the best you can to, you know, hear the other side and be responsive and not just be dismissive and um, attribute the worst possible motives to everybody, right. all your political opponents. It's hard not to do that. I mean, I find myself tempted to, to that, that kind of thing, but I don't see when, when we are in a more um, propitious, I don't know, we find ourselves in an environment where we, we could see a, a way forward. We want to make sure we've done the legwork, the groundwork to, to, to take, take advantage of those, those better moments. Well, um, Tommy, uh, that's uh, that's a very um, inspiring, um, mainly because of of how measured and realistic it is uh, uh, in its optimism. Uh, that's a very inspiring place uh, to end our conversation. Um, thanks so much for joining me today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. 
Well, and thank you, uh, listener, for uh, downloading the Why We Argue podcast, which I remind you is produced by the University of Connecticut's Humility and Conviction in Public Life Project with generous support from the John Templeton Foundation. You can follow the project on Twitter and on Facebook at at Public Humility. Uh, That's one word. Uh, Take care now. Bye-bye.